If you don't have a Bible, the text is in your order of worship, in your bulletin. If you don't own a Bible, we've got a bunch on the back table we'd love to give you. But it'd be good to have the text in front of you. We're in uh, chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3 this morning. Uh, This letter of 1 John is all about certainty. If you've been here, you've heard me probably say that a bunch of times. Uh, You know, how can I know that I'm a Christian? Or how do I know that these alternative Christianities, quote unquote, aren't right? And so the, the apostles hit this in a ton of different ways. He's talked about how we need to, to stick to the gospel, how we need to stick with the scriptures, how do we need to, the, the, the message that we heard from the beginning, as he called it. He's, he's, talked about, he's talked about abiding, that one of the ways that we have certainty is by abiding in Christ, that, that Christianity ultimately isn't about keeping rules as it is a relationship with God, not through your efforts, but through the work of Jesus so we're to abide. And several times, John has given us these, these very stark polarities. These either-or statements that allow for very little gray. If you're anything like me, this has been maddening to you. Because uh, you want wiggle room, right? We want to be able to say, well, yes, but. Kind of give ourselves an out. Today we get to another of these polarities, but one that ultimately is based in the lavish love of God for us. So if you have your place in John chapter 3, if you'd stand, that's our practice here uh, as we hear the scripture read before the sermon. We're in chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. This is God's word for us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. So no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of The devil, whoever does not practice righteousness, is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, many of us, as we hear these words, are either um, struck with nervousness and anxiety. Um, Some of us are struck with utter unbelief. Some of us are having all of our fears of what Christians are like confirmed to us right now. Lord, your word is so much greater and so much deeper than we could imagine. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear it this morning. That as it's proclaimed, that you would do a work of the gospel in us. Everyone in this room, longtime Christian or never before in church, we all need the same thing. We need the grace of God in Jesus to work in us and through us, to help us know you and to be known by you. And so we ask that you would do that for, your, for our good and for your glory's sake. So we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. 
Okay, so normally this is where I give some kind of witty anecdote or story that kind of eases us into the rest of the message, right? That's, that's generally what I do right now. Uh, but this passage is really hard and easily confused. And so in light of that, instead of doing the witty landing uh, what or takeoff, depending on how you look at it, I would rather um, give us a couple of principles that are going to help us, hopefully help us navigate this together uh, and help, frankly, all of us in our private reading of Scripture as well as what we're about to do. Okay? Here's the first one. The first principle that we need to remember is that we have to read a passage in the Bible in its context. Right? The famous, uh, or maybe it's not famous, but at least something that goes around is that a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. All is, which is simply to say that you can take a couple of verses out of the Bible and make them say whatever you want. Quite frankly, you can prove just about anything from a couple of verses taken out of both the grand story of Scripture as a whole and the, and the book or chapter that it's been written in. And so we need to read something within the context of its author and their aims. Because if not, we're just imposing our own set of aims on it and it will not help us, okay? So context, context, context. The second principle is that not everything in the Bible is equally clear. Okay? Not everything is equally clear. I hope if, if, you've, if, if you come from a church background, if you've read enough of the Bible, you know this, right? Not everything is equally clear. Some things are like super clear, and then you read stuff, and it's like, what exactly does that baptism of the dead mean? I don't... I, yeah, I don't, I don't know either. So uh, not everything is equally clear. Um, but since the Bible is God's word, and since it is one overarching narrative that doesn't contradict itself... What we do is we use the clearer passages in the Bible to help us interpret the ones that aren't so clear. Okay? That's called letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay? So as we come into our passage this morning, and as I'm talking about it, I want us to keep those things in mind. Because context tells us that we need to remember that John has said a lot of things throughout the course of this letter. He didn't just start writing in chapter 3. And some of those things were things like, anyone who says that they're without sin is lying. The truth is not in them. Whoa. You know, uh, anyone, anyone, but the good news is that um, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, Jesus the righteous one, who is the propitiation, the, the one who makes us right before God for all of our sins. Right? We have to keep those kind of things in mind as we come to this passage. So let's try and put that into practice, okay? We're going to look at this in two ways. We're going to look at a bold foundation and a call to resemblance. There's an outline in your bulletin. If that's helpful, if not, just leave it. But those are the two points that we're going to be hitting this morning, all right? So let's start with the bold foundation. All right. I cannot say this enough. The first three verses of this chapter are the foundation for the last six. If we don't get the first three, verses one to three, we will completely misunderstand four to ten. Okay, everything else in this passage hinges on this. If you don't get these verses, you will fall into a ditch with the last six. Okay, with me? All right, anticipation. Here we go. All right, here's it. Now look at verse one, because we're going to see a better father. John says this, see what kind of love the father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. And I hate the fact that our translations put a period after that. That needs to be an exclamation point because of the way in which he's saying it. But uh, we'll stop there for a second. If these verses are familiar to you, uh, which probably means that you come from a church background and you've, you've heard these, th- th- this is one of those verses that gets put on a 3x5 card and hung in various places around your house. Or on some kind of mug, 
right? So every time you're drinking coffee, you're reading it. But if that's true, you've probably, it's probably lost their impact on you. But let me explain why that is. You see, many of us, if not most of us, have believed the story, the narrative of our culture. And that narrative says that if there is a God, everyone is a child of God. Right? And in one sense, that may be true. If child, being a child of God is determined by creation... Because we were all created by God. He, he is the creator, we are the created, right? Uh, and so, that, in that sense, maybe that would be true. But when the Bible uses the phrase, child of God, it isn't talking about creation. It's talking about redemption. And that is because the Bible teaches us that we are not, by nature, neutral. Right? Uh, now, we, there, there is that kind of sense in Western culture that we all are kind of born into this tabula rasa, this blank slate, and then nature and, or nurture kind of takes over, and, and that's kind of what, where we go from that. But the Bible says that that is not the, the case at all, that humanity by nature is opposed to God, that we're in fact in rebellion against God, that we want to be God. You with me? See, the, uh, the Apostle Paul, one of the early Christians uh, and Christian leaders, says in, in the book of Ephesians, just a little bit to the left in your Bible, that all of us, by nature, are children of wrath, not God. That's rough, right? Jesus told the Pharisees, he's, he's having this argument with the Pharisees, um, and he's going back and forth with them, and they start getting into, uh, I, I don't know if you've, Maybe, maybe it's hard for you as you read the Bible to remember that these are people that we're talking about. And, and so these arguments that come up, um, we read them and we tend to read Jesus as very detached. He's kind of austere and standing up and proclaiming this way and that way. And everyone else is just kind of, you know, that we forget they're having arguments. And so Jesus and the Pharisees are having an argument at one point. And the Pharisees, who probably at this point know that Jesus' birth story is a little questionable, right? I mean, how many of y'all in the first century would have believed Oh, yeah, that's of the Holy Spirit. Right. Sure, Mary, we get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. And so they know it's a little questionable, and they look at him and we go, and they go, um, hey, don't talk to us about whether or not we're children of Abraham. We're not the ones with a questionable birth. And he turns and says, no, 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 you're mishearing me. You're children of your father, the devil. That's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, okay? You're children of the devil. Okay, that's what he, he's saying to them. Not a positive picture. It's not a positive picture that the Bible paints of who we are by nature. And that is why John says that this is amazing. This is the evidence of the love of God. And so John is amazed. Look at it again. He's like, look at this love that was given to us. We are called children of God. And then it says, if he, he look at what he just wrote. And he's like, and that's what we are. This is amazing. This is the greatest thing ever. Say so two things about this before we leave this verse. First, John says that this love that made us children of God was given to us. Another way to say that would be it was gifted to us. He doesn't say, look at the kind of love we earned. Look at the kind of love we merited. Slaved for. Worked hard to get. He says, given. In other words, the love of God... To the, to, for redemption is a gift. It is a grace. The love of God that calls us children is grace. It isn't merited, lobbied for, or contracted. It is given. 
It is grace. But second, this love of God had a purpose. Okay? That's, that's hard to see in the translation. But in the original, in, in Greek, uh, the, the New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, in, in the original, the, the phrase that we should be called children of God is a purpose statement. It's very easy to see in, in the original. It's a purpose. In other words, the love of God was given so that we might be called children of God. It, it is a, this is an, important to the rest of the passage. The particular love of God that's being talked about is not the love of God that kind of makes the sun shine and gives us food and, and we're, look how we're all taken care of. It is the love of God that rescues us, calls us out of our sin and slavery, out of our rebellion and into his family. It is adoptive love. It is extravagant and lavish And if the rest of the Bible is true, and we're to really understand the amazement of John here, we have to see that this is crazy. God's love was given to us to take us from being rebels to being children. Not slaves, not workers, not even just pardoned. The love of God would have been lavish if we went from being guilty rebels to being pardoned and left alone. That would be pretty amazing. But not only do we not get what we do deserve, the love of God was given to us so that we could get what we could never deserve. You're not just a pardoned rebel. You're turned into a son or daughter. And that leads to a bright future. Look down at verses 2 to 3. See, in the ancient world, unlike today, uh, parentage was a really big deal, right? The identity, and especially when I say parentage, I mean the identity of your father, Super important. In modern Western culture, we believe, and to some extent, this is a fib, that we can be whatever we want to be, right? Don't we all tell our kids that? For the record, I cannot be a great dancer. And it has nothing to do with how much I want to work at it. It just ain't going to happen, okay? I cannot be an Olympic diver. Have you seen me? Right? Like, that, that body is not doing the no splash thing. It ain't working. However, we believe that lie. Anyway, that's an aside. But in the ancient world, whether you were naturally born, like, whether you were born into a family or adopted into it, you were expected to become like your daddy. You were, you, were, you were expected to follow him in the family business. You were expected to model your character after him. He was your uh, archetype. You were to be like him. With me? So with that in mind, listen to what John says. Beloved, we are God's children right now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he does appear, we will be made like him because we will see him as he is. Now let me break this down before I hit verse 3. John is saying, if you are a Christian, okay, if you're not a Christian here, just listen in, okay? Glad you're here, but this is specifically for Christians. If you are a Christian, you will be made like God. Now, that shouldn't be so surprising because humanity is described throughout the Bible as being in the image of God, right? The fancy theological phrase for that is the imago dei, that that we were being made in the image of God. We were made to be like him. Now, sin has twisted that. It has morphed that, but it hasn't completely erased it. It couldn't because it is so essential to who we are that it couldn't get rid of it. And God, through the work of Jesus, is seeking to restore us to that. So here's where this meets up with the children language. John is saying, if you are a Christian, your future, 
your future is that if you are a Christian, is to be made like your father. You will bear the family resemblance. You will. Now, what does this mean? Okay. Let me get technical for a second for you uh, theology nuts. In, um, in, in Christian theology, we talk about two kinds of ways, uh, two kinds of attributes of God. There's the communicable type and the incommunicable type. Okay? Ooh, big words. All right, here's what that means. There are the attributes that you and I can actually have, and they're the ones that we can't. So the, the ones that we can't, the incommunicable type, are the things like omniscience, knowing everything. Sorry, you'll never know everything. Your brain never gets any bigger, okay? And the movies are wrong. Even if you had full use of it, you still would not know everything, okay? So um, there's omniscience, omnipresence, being in more than one place, being everywhere at the same time. Can't do that? Sorry. Uh, uh, omnipotence, being able to do whatever you want. Like anything that comes to mind, you have ultimate power. Those are incommunicable attributes. Communicable attributes, things that we can't have, are things like mercy. God is merciful. His justice, his love. Um, his righteousness, his purity, his compassion. Those are the ways. The communicable attributes are the ways that we will be like God. When he says that we will be like him, he does not mean that you're all going to get to be little gods. Okay? No, no, that, not, not even close. He means you're going to bear his resemblance. Okay? And then he finishes with this. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Okay? Now let me make sure this is clear. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. That's hope in America. Right? Hope in America is, man, I really hope I get a new video game system for Christmas, right? When we're little or, or something like that. Uh, hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. Hope is something certain that you know will happen. It is going to happen, and you are right now to hope in it is to begin living into that reality before it happens. Okay? That's what hope means. So if you have the hope that you will be made like God in true righteousness and holiness, as the Apostle Paul tells us, you will begin to live into that, to anticipate that in the now. You with me? Okay. Here's what's important, though. We need to understand the order. John says, if you know that this is the case... Because the lavish love of God has been given to you to make you a child that will then one day become like this. Because that has been given, so then you begin anticipating that final thing. Don't miss the order. Becoming more like Jesus, seeking holiness, does not get you the love of God. It couldn't. It can never. Because you can't. That is independence. That is trying to earn something from God. And the scriptures are clear. When we try to earn something from God, we are actually proclaiming that we don't need him. We don't want him. We just want to be our employer so that we can get a paycheck from him. The Bible calls that sin. It calls it sin. It may look pretty, but it's sin. We are to pursue holiness because of what you have already been given by God. Not to get something from God. If you miss that, listen to me, if you miss that, you miss the gospel. You miss Christianity as a whole. That order is that crucial. Okay? And that leaves us simply with the breathtaking gift. 
in our culture, listen, in our culture, we want to think uh, that becoming a child of God is either something we are born into or something we get by our effort. And it is neither. It is neither. Okay? Becoming a child of God is a gift that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. And I know that is offensive to us, and for some of us, different reasons than for others, right? Because for some of us, it offends our pride. Because we want to think, no, no, Rick, I, I can get this. I can get chips with God. I, I can show up to church. I can keep my nose clean. I can, I, can, uh, I can give when I'm supposed to. I can be loving and tolerant and all of these things. We don't like the idea that we're broken, that we're sinful, that we're in need of rescue. Because at most, what we really believe, oh, I just need a hand up. I just need a hand up. To those of us in this camp, if that's you this morning, the gospel says this. You are way worse than you think you are. It's way worse. The gospel call is for you to stop clinging to your own righteousness so that you can open your hands to something that is being given to you. The love of God in Jesus. You've got to stop clinging to your righteousness, your works, your religiosity, your moralism, your tolerance, whatever it is. Loosen your hands because before God, he calls them not, not pure, great things. He calls them filthy rags. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. See? No one on the recording is going to get that, but someone screamed in the background. So if you're wondering, that's what that's about. Whatever it is you think endears you to God... Open your hands so that you can receive the gift of God's free grace. Jesus has already met the standard that you are slaving to do. Because you can't. Place your faith in him. Receive the love that God has for you. So for some of us, it offends our pride. For others of us, though, it exposes our shame. It exposes our shame. Because we want to believe that God calls us child by birth, the same as everyone else. Because you see, if that is the case, if we're all children of God just because we exist, then it doesn't really matter what I've done. Because I know I've done a lot. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how messed up I am, because ultimately, God doesn't really care. But if it isn't by birth, and God does care, then how can I ever be acceptable to God? Exposes our shame. To those of us in this camp, the gospel says, you are far more loved than you ever dreamed. God's love is far better than you can ever believe. Listen, listen, because here's the great part. If God's love is a gift, then not only can you do nothing to earn it, but you can't do anything to disqualify you from it. Because it's a gift that you just receive. The problem is the same as with those who are offended because of pride. Except you aren't clinging to your righteousness. You're clinging to your shame. And you're saying, this is what is most true of me. And no one can love me because of this. God could never be pleased with me unless he doesn't care. But God does care. And he can be. But not because of you. Because of Christ. But you need to open your hands to the shame. Let it go. Look, if he couldn't love you, if he could never love someone like you, can I tell you the truth? He couldn't love anybody. Because we're all jacked up. 
every one of us, and in need. But Jesus is enough. But you have to be willing to receive that gift through faith. Will you receive it? Whether it offends your pride or your shame, will you receive it? All right. Now that foundation we just laid is important. Because that is what is holding up the rest of these verses. The rest of the structure is built on that. So don't forget that as we move forward. Because the rest is a call to resemblance. Okay? And in this section, in these last six verses, John does a work of trying to reframe our understanding of sin. Uh, let's start with reframing rebellion. Look down at verses 4 to 6. John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness because sin is Lawlessness. Now, stop there. We need to get this squared away. If you're a regular at Holy Cross, you're used to me saying that the essence of sin, to some degree, is independence of God, right? And that is true. But it is not the only way the Bible talks about sin. It talks about it in a bunch of different ways, different perspectives, and some of them speak to us in different ways. John is trying to engage from a different direction. He says it's lawlessness. Here's what that means. To say that sin is lawlessness is to raise it beyond the issue of breaking a rule. Because if you break a rule, you just broke a rule. Instead, it raises it to the issue of rebellion. And what this does is it presses against that part of us that wants to say, when we sin, that it wasn't that big a deal. Uh, that that uh, God doesn't really care much about this one. He cares about these other ones, but not really this one. I mean, it's not that big a deal, right? You know this about yourself, right? That's our penchant for self-justification. We do it a lot. John is saying that cannot be the case. In, in a lot of ways, he's doing the same thing that the Lord's brother James does in his letter when he says that to break one of the laws is to break them all. And you're like, what? Come on. What are you talking about? Well, think of it this way. Jesus says the law is summarized into two commands. To love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That it can be distilled down to that essence. That is the essence. And that all of the, all of the big ten, right? The ten commandments, those big ten, are simply working out what those things mean. What it means to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We get that in the first four. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's in the five to ten, right? Now there's crossover, of course, but for the most part, that's a good division. The thing is, if you break one of them, you are betraying God. You're not loving God, are you? And here John says, to practice sin is to practice rebellion. It is to say, I want to be the one who sets the rules. Not him. Me. I should be the one doing it. Because what I think is most important is really the most important thing. And if you all were just smart enough to think like me, you'd agree. Now, before you freak out, I want to point out this little word before sin. He says, practice. <laughs> Practicing sin, when he's talking about this, does not mean the occasional issue. It does not mean, uh, you know, having someone come to you and be like, hey, uh, the other day, when you said this, this, and this, um, that was really hurtful. Uh, you were wounding me with your words, and you feel awful about it, and you're just like, I am so sorry. That's not what he's talking about. The practice of sin means a life characterized by it, characterized by that issue. 
It's not just being exposed like, oh my gosh, I wounded somebody with my words. It is going off and going, not only did I do it, I don't really care that I did it, and you deserved it. And I'm going to keep doing it. Okay? Look at verse 5, though, because he says that Jesus appeared to take away sins. This is big, so follow me. To take away sins, that Jesus appeared, that he, would, he came on the scene to take away sins, means a couple of things. First, it means to take away the penalty of sin. And that's what most of us think about when we think of Jesus and his work on the cross. He died to bear the wrath of God for us in our place. Um, we, we committed sin, uh, but his death was substitutionary. He, though without sin, took our place so that by faith we can take his place. It is a substitutionary death. That is true. But to take away sin also means not just to take away its penalty, but also its power. See, if you have faith in Christ, the New Testament would tell you that your old nature, that nature that's not neutral to God, that's in rebellion against God, that that nature has been changed so that you are no longer a slave to sin. The the Bible tells us that before we become Christians, we literally cannot do anything but sin, which doesn't mean we're constantly doing everything bad. It means we're constantly doing everything independent of God. Because even our obedience to the law, the Bible would say, before we become Christians, is done unlawfully. (laughs) Isn't that weird? You can obey the law unlawfully. If, if, if you're doing it in such to create a, a, a record for yourself before God, it's an unlawful way of using the law. But now, Jesus has taken that away. And that's why he says in verse 6, the one who remains in Jesus doesn't sin this way. And so if you do, you prove that you're not in him. Uh, the important thing that we get, because we're going to hit some of the rest of those questions we go down later. The important thing about this is that the impetus for change that John gives right here is not on you. You didn't take away sins. Jesus did. That's the point. And we see the same thing in verses 7 to 8, where he reframes family. John says, don't be deceived. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, because he's been sinning from the beginning. All right, stop there. So, The last three verses talked about the nature of sin, that it's not just breaking rules, it's rebellion. Um, This is talking about its origin. Sin began with the devil. Now, I know we're in the 21st century, and we're all modern Americans. You're like, come on, Rick, really? The devil? Do we really have to? Yes, we do. And and this is true. So uh, just follow me. Um, Humanity was deceived into sin by believing a lie. Some of you, if you're at Holy Cross a lot, you know I, I talk about this a lot, right? That lie now frames our reality apart from Jesus. And that lie is very simple. God doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He's out to hold you back. You could be like him if you just did this. You don't need him. That sound familiar? Because that's not something that has gone away. That's hardwired. That's encoded (laughs) into our very natures now. And so we believed that lie instead of believing God, and we turned away from him. That's what sin is. And so to continue to live in sin, to have a life characterized by it, whether we are talking about greed or addictions or pornography or gossip or even self-righteousness, to, to continue into a life characterized by those things is to continue to believe that lie. You with me? And so what John says is that actually shows a different family resemblance. That's where we start reflecting what Jesus said to the Pharisees. 
But John says, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. In other words, he came to take away sin, and he came to destroy the work of the devil through destroying the lie. How did he do that? Actually, it was very simple. If the lie is God doesn't love you, God doesn't care about you, God's out to get you, he's just holding you back. Jesus destroyed that by loving us before we loved him. By dying for us while we were enemies. By taking ungrateful, unloving, rebellious people and bearing their judgment so that we could be adopted as God's children. See, John's point in both of these, both the look at the nature of sin and look at its origin, is not to say clean up your act so that you can be God's child. It's once again to lay out a test. A test so that we can be certain. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, then your sin has been taken away. You actually can change. And the devil's work of convincing you that God is out to get you and you shouldn't listen to him or trust him has been destroyed. You really can trust that he's enough. Look, I know there's still questions, so let me try and get to these in those last two verses. Look down at verse 9 to 10. Here he restates this notion of being born of God. And so we talked about this, I believe, last week. Um, We talked about how that being born of God is a change of nature. It's that change of nature that again comes by grace so that we can believe. It's called regeneration. Right? Jesus says you you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't understand the kingdom of God. You surely can't enter the kingdom of God until you've been, he tells Nicodemus, born again. Regenerated. It isn't optional to Christianity. I know a lot of us have kind of come up thinking that there's Christians and there's a born again Christians. They're the crazy ones. Uh, it's not. The Bible says, no, 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 that's not the case. It isn't optional to Christianity. John is saying, if you've been born again, your life will look different. Now, if you're confused, it is probably because you hear me say each and every week, okay, if you've been at Holy Cross any amount of time, you hear me say each and every week that Christians need to get that we are needy that we continue to sin, and that we still need grace every day, right? And that is true. And those two statements, what John is telling us here, and what I just told you there, are not in conflict. Okay? Here's why. The practice of sinning that he's talking about is a life that is unrepentant. The Bible is very clear that on this side of the return of Jesus, you and I cannot be perfect. Let me say that again. On this side of the return of Jesus, no matter how hard you work, labor, try, self-abuse, fast, uh, do whatever, you cannot be perfect this side of glory. Right? What John is saying is not that you need to be perfect. Remember, in verse 2, he says, I don't know what we're going to be like. And until he returns, it won't be revealed what we're going to be like. So what he's not saying is go clean up your act so you can be perfect because that's what Christians are supposed to be. He's already said in verses 1 to 3, that is not possible and will not be possible until he comes again. But now we live into the hope of that day. If we know the world that I am going to live in with God forever is a world where sin cannot be, And I know for certain I will be there, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. 
then I begin living into that reality now. Why? To get anything from God? No. Everything I need from God's already been given to me in Jesus. I live into that now to be prepared for the life that I will be living. And John says, if we aren't, if we don't care that we're stuck in sin, if we don't care that we're stuck raging at people, gossiping about people, using people, not loving God, addicted to porn, using alcohol to deal with life, judging others for not being as good at us, then John is saying, you may not be a Christian. I love you. But we need to let this passage read us. Don't try and explain that away. Well, yeah, but I just... Da, 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 da. No. John is saying, if your life is defined by unrepentant sin, whether that looks really ugly or looks very self-righteous, if your life is defined by that, the answer is not to reform, but to be reborn. You with me? This is another test for, for us. If you are here and you profess faith in Jesus, but that faith has no impact on your day-to-day life, then John would say your profession is most probably false. But if you're here and you profess faith in Jesus, but then live as if you need to earn God's favor all the time or at least work hard to keep it up, and you're in bondage. You're in bondage to keeping the standard that you've set for yourself, which isn't God's standard, because you know that's way too high. I've got to bring it down here because at least this is manageable, and, and you're in bondage to doing this because you think you need to earn God's favor through your obedience. John would say your profession is probably false. Our obedience, our growth in grace, our holiness as Christians, all the hard words of verses 4 through 10 must come from the love freely given in verses 1 to 3. If they do not, it is not Christian. It might be religious, but it would look just as well in a mosque as it would in a church. Here's what I mean practically. Okay, let me get practical for a second. If you are here and you keep going to those websites that you know you shouldn't, <laughs> right? And let's, let's be honest. We're, we're here and we, we do that. Men, women, we do it, right? The answer, well, let me put it this way. There are three options for you. You can simply resign yourself. This is just who I am. That would be giving in to shame. This is who I am. Jesus doesn't define me. My uh, penchant for looking uh, on websites I shouldn't defines me. So you, you can just give in to that. That's shame. It's not Christian, but it's shame. You could grit your teeth and just stop. That would be pride. Okay? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I'm strong enough. Gosh darn it, people like me. So I can do this. I can just stop. Or you can return to the gospel and stop. This means seeing that what you're looking for when you click, whether that is satisfaction, whether that's being desired, whether that's relational safety because you're the one who's in control and all of these people always want you, that what you're looking for cannot be found there but in Christ. And he freely gives it. G.K. Chesterton famously said that every man who knocks on the door of of a brothel is hoping that God will answer
Returning to the gospel and stopping means seeing that you aren't just struggling, needing a new tactic. That you are broken and need a savior. See, either one of the others is a path that is grounded in the lie of Satan. God's not for me, he doesn't love me, and I've got to clean up my act, but I can't, so I'm just hopeless. Or, God doesn't love me, he's not for me, I've got to clean up my act, and I can, so I will, on my own. Either one of those is a path grounded in the lie of Satan and the, and the nature that Jesus died to remove, because ultimately all sin stems from unbelief. All right, listen, this passage is hard. And if you're visiting here with us and you're here at Holy Cross for the first time, you're like, why did I come into this one? The only worst one would be if he was talking about money. At least he's not talking about money. I promise you I'm not talking about money, okay? Maybe. No, I won't. Um, This passage is hard, but I want it to be heard for what it says. We are made children of God by the lavish love of God poured out on us by the Spirit through the work of Jesus. What that means is you cannot earn it. And if you can't earn it, and you've received it, you can't do anything to lose it. That same work, that same love, that same grace then changes us and frees us to change. It's not just declaring us to be something we're not. It's actually working in us and changing us, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus. And if we aren't experiencing that change, I'm not saying it's a complete upward trajectory, always victorious, great Christian living. But I mean, if, if we're not experiencing that change, maybe it's crawling, but it's there. Then we need to question whether we've really received the grace and love of God or not. And if not, the answer is not to work harder to prove that we're something we're not. The answer is to return to Jesus and live into the hope that he has achieved for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, this was a hard passage. I was really hoping I would just be able to skip this one. And so for that reason, I thank you that you have put us in a tradition that values preaching through an entire book of the Bible, so we can't do that. But Lord, it's true. This this word is true for us. And so, Lord, I pray for my friends here that... um, Uh, Maybe this is your first time in church. Maybe this is your first time uh, ever hearing the gospel, whether you've been in church a million years, but you just never heard the gospel. I pray for them that you would let them, by, by your grace, receive the lavish love of God for them in Jesus. And for others of us who are here and we're stuck uh, performing hard and we're tired, we're so weary, we're working so hard for you and we're not realizing we're working on all the wrong things. I pray that you would give them grace to receive the lavish love of God for them in Jesus. That makes them not servants. Not like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal who says, I have slaved for you all of these years and you've never given me what I wanted. But instead receives the lavish love of God and becomes a son or a daughter. Father, change us, transform us that we might be a people of of transformation who don't just... Uh, say good things about you, but then go and begin living into the family resemblance. Transform us as a church to bear that resemblance more and more. Would you break the bondages that are present in this room? Whether they're to self-righteousness or to, or to sin that we'd rather keep quiet and under the table. Break those bondages for your glory's sake and make us new. Give us grace to live into the hope that is certain that we will be made like you. 
when you appear. We ask this in Christ's name.